TBA 21 Academy Radio. You are listening to Magical Fresh and Salty Conversations, TBA 21 Academy's podcast series exploring ecological and magical perspectives on bodies of water. This series of conversations reflects on the anthropogenic transformations of marine ecosystems, leaning on the innovative trajectories of science, technology, and art. Through performance, expeditions, sound, film, and image making, the contributing artists engage with the underwater world in encounters with scientists and thinkers, proposing a world reimagined from within the waters. Whether in the fictional, scientific, or science fictional realm, an interspecies future lies ahead of us. Seascape Epistemology and the Venetian Cocoon. Every living being is an experiment made out of the flesh of the planet. In order to navigate it, the stars have to become a part of you. This episode of Magical, Fresh, and Salty Conversations features two discussions that touch upon the interests of the Starts residents. Sonia Levy is joined by scholar, writer, and surfer Karen Amimoto Ingersoll, while her collaborator, Meredith Root Bernstein, talks to philosopher Emanuela Katja. Together, our guests look at the possibility of knowledge otherwise emerging from our interactions with watery spaces. How can immersed perspectives generate epistemologies that challenge imperial structures? How can thinking at the interplay of surface and subsurface processes help us understand both human and more than human agency in a changing world? A Kanaka master navigator enacts his oceanic literacy daily by embodying about 3,000 environmental pieces of information and making about 200 decisions based on the corporeally collected data. In her conversation with the artist Sonia Levy, Karen Amimoto Ingersoll, a Kanaka Maoli political scientist, writer, and surfer based in Honolulu, discusses her notion of seascape epistemology. How can embodied literacies like navigation Ho Okele, and fishing, Levi A, offer cultural affirmations that open up alternatives to the neo colonial systems that continue to subjugate Hawaiian identity. In their residency project, Sonia Levy and her collaborators think from within the depths of a very different space, the Venetian Lagoon. How can Ingersoll's approach inform Levy's submerged perspectives? initiating life-affirming passageways of knowing and being. Our project engages with Venice and its lagoon from below, with the aim to bring attention to the city-submerged, life-giving and altered biogeomorphological processes. What insights can be gathered by attending to these muddy land waterscapes? The consolidation of Venice as a trading hub and epicenter of naval advancement during the Middle Ages transformed the city and the lagoon into a place of hard buyers and controlled boundaries. The dredging of transnational shipping lanes in the early 20th century turned the lagoon into an industrial frontier, reconfiguring spatial class divisions between the island city and the mainland, and increasing the volatility of an already dynamic space. One might consider the controversial MOSE, the Mobile Flood Defense Barrier System, completed in 2020, as a legacy of such military industrial schemes that often fortify spaces 
while ignoring multi-species relationalities. Amid these tensions, our project seeks to ask, how can alternative understandings of history, agency, management, and politics can emerge from thinking materially and analytically from below? Your book, Waves of Knowing, foregrounds the notion of seascape epistemology. Could you tell us about seascape epistemology and how it emerges from reclaiming indigenous critical perspective as a kanaka Maoli, through the keikai, which is the Awain word for ocean, and through ehenalu, the Awain word for surfing? Yeah, thank you so much, Sonia, for having me. It really is an honor. Um, your work is so fascinating to me, the, the little that I've seen. So I'm really happy to be here with you. So seascape epistemology is really an approach to knowing um, presumed on a knowledge of the sea. This knowing kind of tells you how to move through the ocean, how to approach life and knowing through the movements of the ocean and the seascape itself based on very visual and spiritual and intellectual and most importantly, an embodied literacy of the seascape. When I speak of the seascape, I'm really talking about the ocean from a Native Hawaiian epistemological perspectives. The seascape is not just the, the ocean and the water itself. It includes all of the birds and the colors of the clouds and the currents and the seaweed and the fish and the ocean swells and the different depths in the ocean and all of the celestial bodies as a philosophy of knowledge. It's more a knowledge of how all of these parts of the seascape create an interconnected system. It's like an approach to life and knowing through passageways, how they all move and interact with each other while really emphasizing the importance of knowing one's place inside of this constantly moving system. It really speaks to how Native Hawaiians can then travel and adapt and become multi-sided as really complex individuals, as opposed to stagnant, indigenous, or cultural, as has been an identity placed upon us by dominant Western thought worlds. In this way, seascape epistemology becomes also a politically empowering and ethical way of knowing and being as well. It really helps to create a paradigm that relocates Hawaiian identity back into the seascape, which that is a time and space that's really empowering for us because we have this really profound historical relationship to the ocean. There's a genealogical connection that we have to the ocean where we are born from the core polyp in the bottom. It kind of emerges from a reclaiming of critical perspectives for Kanaka Maoli because, you know, as a surfer myself, as a Kanaka, I sit within a colonial landscape and seascape, essentially. But what seascape epistemology allows is for me to rediscover how the ocean really enables for this autonomous recreation and reconnection and reimagination of myself. And the other ocean literacies that I look at are navigation or ho'okele and fishing or lavaia. And all of these, along with He'inalu, really offer cultural awareness and affirmation, right, that breaks with the neocolonial systems and the colonial history that continue to just subject Hawaiian knowledge and identity. Can you describe how seascape epistemology is a different way of knowing uh, that contests the characteristic Western mind-body dualism? Or as you put it, how is seascape epistemology a form of knowing without knowing how we know at all? I think the best way that I can 
explain that is through the ocean-based knowledge, or as I call it, the oceanic literacy of Ho'okele, which is non-instrument navigation. To voyage across thousands of miles, you know, on an open ocean without a GPS or any form of compass or physical navigational tools requires an embodied knowledge. Nainoa Thompson is um, a master Kanaka navigator here who I interviewed many times in the research for this work. And he told me that within a day, a navigator is essentially taking in about 3,000 different environmental pieces of information from the stars, from the moon, from the wind direction, from the waves, from the clouds, all of these pieces of information are being stored and taken in through a navigator's body. And then he said that within the day, there are about 200 decisions that a navigator has to make based on the data collected by the body that is made with the analytical mind. You know, everything that the skin feels and the nose smells and the muscles hold inside the body are critical. The mind is still important to help arrange all of this information to find direction, but it's the body that gathers it. The mind at many times has to become very, very quiet. In contrast to this is the Western thought world that really separates the mind and the body and also really tends to prioritize the analytical mind. I, I argue that this sort of disembodied approach to knowledge and ways of being in the world, so this disembodied epistemology and ontology really fails to capture the experience of identity because the body is completely left out of the understanding of the self. And I love this quote that illustrates this so well. This, the author and scholar Paul Carter, he says, like photographers taking care, their shadow does not get into the picture. We absent ourselves from the scene of discovery and a description of the world is accounted most authoritative when it contains no trace of the knower. There's also another step that this example of Ho'okele or non-instrument navigation shows us um, a break in the duality between the self and the other. So there's another Kanaka master navigator named Bruce Blankenfeld, and he says that when you're navigating, he says those stars really have to be part of you. You know, there's um, not only a connection between the mind and the body, but there's also this deep, profound connection where the mind and the body kind of dissolves into the seascape itself so that you become part of this seascape as well. And this requires a deep and really profound employment of the imagination because we really can't create anything, right, without first imagining it. How does seascape epistemology dispute the colonial structures and thought worlds which have reshaped Hawaii? And how does it challenge the cosmology of global capitalism? And I wanted to just point on the work we're doing in Venice because we're trying to bring this view from below the waterline, a submerged perspective on the Venetian lagoon, primarily as a reaction against hegemonic representation from above, depicting the lagoon as a space subjected to militarized and imperial ventures for economic power. So I'm curious to know how seascape epistemology challenges a Western perspective that posit the ocean as otherness, approaches which have been uh, complicit to the violent colonizing and civilizing projects of Hawaii and, and its people. I think that the real power of seascape epistemology is that it creates alternatives. It creates new passageways through movement and traveling, and it really allows for multiplicity and diversity. It allows for what has been deemed invisible to be seen. 
and to really be affirmed and empowered, right? Through an indigenous way of moving and being inside this colonial narrative or industry or system. There's a term in Hawaiian um, called mana. And mana is essentially like a spiritual or internal power. I see these professional surfers doing is that they're really strengthening their mana by engaging in the oceanic literacy of surfing. And they're showing it to the world, essentially. You can be a powerful Kanaka within the system and increase your mana and increase your visibility, increase your cultural heritage and connection to that cultural heritage while sitting within a colonial landscape. Seascape epistemology really allows for self-empowerment by recognizing alternatives and finding pathways around, under, through, over, you know, being flexible and fluid. As you are saying, as you bring the camera below the waterline in the Venetian Lagoon, I think it's brilliant. I think you're doing the same thing. You know, you're making what is invisible visible and you're showing this alternative perspective to the history of Venice that might not include the militarization or the capitalist power. It takes, I think, a lot of time because there's just a lot of listening that needs to be done to the underwater line in the lagoons. In Waves of Knowing, you expand on the notion of ocean literacy in relation to Kanaka Maoli ways of knowing and being. Could you tell us what ocean literacy is and what it is doing for you? How does knowing and reading the living language of Kekai becomes a reimagination process? Oceanic literacy is really the applied knowledge within a seascape epistemology. The ability to read, for instance, the different colors of the ocean and to know that where it gets darker and black, there might be a fishing hole or if the water ripples, it might be a shallow reef that's impassable for a canoe or um, how to interpret emotions when on the ocean, you know, how to relax the body and the lungs when you're being held underwater. All of those are the literacies. An example of how oceanic literacy really allows one to create this epistemology with self-empowerment and decreation and recreation of the self within a colonial reality is if we look at a mo'olalo, which is an oral history in Hawaii where there's a fisherwoman and her name is Ke'ana Haki, and she fishes by actually throwing her physical eyes into the ocean. Kanaka understand through the oceanic literacy of fishing that to look with the eyes is more than just a physiological act, right? It's a metaphorical way of thinking and imagining in relation to a specific understanding of the world and their relationship to that time and space of the sea. The eyes and the, her entire body, right, are politicized here too, as sight is really expanded again into a realm of geopolitical cartography, right, into this fishing zone, which back in the day may have been a specific zone that was designated by the royalty or the chiefs. It's a geography that contests this dominant colonial way of seeing or mapping the fishing shorelines. Kiana Haki's site is related to her way of being and understanding herself, her ontological understanding of the world, which sits in her genealogical relationship to the sea and its creatures. She's using her oceanic literacy to be hyper aware of the fish by literally placing her eyes in the sea and picking up on sensations that affect her body. So she's choosing to imagine and interpret this 
relationship that really transforms the information in her brain through her ontological relationship to the ocean. And that again becomes another political act of seeing that expands her reality. So again, in Waves of Knowing, you describe how um, Kanaka Maoli's approaches to surfing and navigating, which you touch upon already, uh, make geographies otherwise. Uh, land and seascapes become less static and bounded by the abstract gridded space of cartography. Can you describe those understandings and how they differ from Western framing of space? Um, or to quote you, uh, by inscribing the natural and the geographic via maps and charts, Western imperialism imagined and brought into being national modern space. So how these embodied practices uh, of navigating and surfing produce different models for understanding oceanic spaces? Yeah, well, in both surfing and navigation, there's a new creation of movement and stasis because the body or the canoe becomes the stable point and the entire cosmos moves around and through that stable point. There is a focal point, the body, but even that stable point is also in motion. But the critical point here is that the maps of the surrounding seascape aren't stable either. So there are no grids and lines of latitude or longitude, but the epistemology that each navigator embraces when voyaging really erases these lines and grids because their map, which constitute the stars and the moon and the clouds and the, the fish and the swells and the winds and the ocean bubbles, you know, these are all always moving. And the same is with a surfer um, who is sitting inside the seascape negotiating waves and swells and currents. Not only is the body the focal point, but the body sits inside the map itself. In Ho'okele or navigation, for instance, you know, all the points on the map, which are, these points are like the stars, the islands, um, the fish, etc. You know, all of these points on the map are connected to every other point on the map. And all of these points are moving within the 12,000 miles of the Pacific Ocean together, created by this guidance system that's anchored in relationships. So the fundamental concept is that stars on these Pacific maps, the stars mark islands and reefs, not in relation to these cardinal directions of north, south, east, west, but in relation to other stars, islands, and reefs, which are all moving in synchronized patterns. So the navigator has to know what these patterns are, and he or she has to know what these relationships are. To just elaborate upon this concept of how mobile and fluid these maps are, the navigator even understands the islands and reefs as expanding and contracting as they move because parts of the islands are also the inhabitants of the island, like the fish or plants that move out with low tide or move back in with high tides. The seascape, which is, again, the navigator's map, moves around the center point of the canoe or the body. And what that does is it really allows the navigator to know their position and location as indexed by the signs in the surrounding seascape. The Voyager is always inside the map at the center. I think that what that does is it creates a map, not only that moves through relationships, but it leads to a way of moving and traveling through spaces and places that doesn't really need to impose the identity of self in a dominant way, because the self is always inside the voyage itself. I think the entire epistemology of the way that Pacific Islanders move through time and space on the seascape very much contrasts that of the way that Westerners move 
through the time and space of the sea. It makes me think about ways of governing water space as well. The difference lies there as well, or maybe within this space of fluidity and movement and accepting of changes. There is something different that happens there as well in, in how maybe there is a different way of governing. Yeah, absolutely. The maps that Westerners have traditionally and still draw today are very static. They draw very distinct coastlines. And we know that coastlines are not static. They're always moving and changing. Those lines that are drawn on maps and on the earth are very much static and attempts to control land. Whereas Kanakamoli never considered um, land or seascape as something that was owned. It was something where you had the responsibility to take care of. So it does set up a very different approach to governing. Could you tell us what the Iwayan word Aina means? The dictionary really defines Aina just as land or earth, um, but I means to eat. So clearly there's this relationship between the Aina and it's considered that which feeds. But Aina is, you know, much more than just land or earth on several levels, because first, you know, land for Kanakamali encompasses the sea as well. The traditional land division in Hawaii were pie shaped. So you have the volcano in the middle or the mountains in the middle of the islands, and then it would um, slope down into the ocean. And an ali'i or um, a chief would rule that one land division and all the commoners would work it and have their responsibilities in taking care of the land, but nobody owned the land. That way, everybody in each division has everything that they need to survive. You have all of the resources from upland and then all of the resources in the drier land and then all of the resources in the ocean for fishing, for fish ponds, etc. So the land really extended out into the ocean. Um, so Aina really means much more than just land or earth. So as demonstrated in your work, Western thought has repeatedly assumed an imposed universality of concepts while refusing abstraction and with a wish to respect the place-based and embeddedness of your research. Uh, what could our investigations on the Venice Lagoon learn from your work? I absolutely think that even though my work is focused on Kanakamawali, Um, and is contextualized through our specific colonial history and that of surf tourism, um, that seascape epistemology is truly a way of knowing and being that is currently already being embraced beyond our shores and adapted, of course, you know, and altered by each individual or group of people to their own specific histories and literacies. Yeah, I think it's It's entirely intended as an epistemology to travel and to adapt and to and to expand, you know, outside of the geographic boundaries of Hawaii. I didn't create any new knowledge or way of being through seascape epistemology. It's just my articulation of how this specific Kanaka oceanic literacies can become an epistemology and an ontology that is both political and ethical when put inside the context of our specific colonial history. I think it's just so brilliant for you to look at Venice from below, as I said, and you talk about the changes that you have noticed in the lagoon sediment and in the reeds and the turbidity and the increased populations of these oysters, which had been introduced, but are now flourishing and thriving um, in the lagoon and, you know, what all that could mean. But I think that just the 
engagement of paying attention to all of these parts of the lagoon and listening and watching and feeling them, you know, they do have their stories to tell about the history of Venice. The lagoon is definitely communicating and, you know, going below the surface, you're going into what is unseen, but present. And absolutely the lagoon reshapes the landscape of Venice. It's offering this counter politics and this counter narrative to the dominant one. We just have to look and listen and embrace all the inconsistencies that their stories are telling you. Um, You know, because I think that those inconsistencies are really possibilities of the lagoon itself to offer more alternatives, just the way that the, the seascape does. Can I ask you to watch these film clips from the lagoon that I filmed on the water? And while you look at it, can I ask you to describe what you see, uh, what you hear, and share your reaction to it? What it makes you think of, what it begets for you? As I'm looking at the clip, you know, there's this extremely graceful sea plant that is, you know, essentially dancing very gently underwater. Um, And I can see all of the very murky sediment in the lagoon. So it's not what I'm accustomed to with an ocean bottom. And then with the second clip, you know, I can see pathways with um, the movements of the, the plant life, the seaweeds and algae. But at the same time, there was something sad about it to me as well. So for one, I could hear um, what I think or I imagined were boats rocking above and then motorboats. And it sounded like airplanes almost to me. It really conjured up this idea of movement and travel for me, which I think carries a very powerful potential. But at the same time, just all of the the murkiness of it i think is what brought this feeling of sadness and the the fact that there was so much sort of noise pollution going on I really appreciated the concept of passageways and highways and movement and travel that I saw and heard, but at the same time, it seemed as if things were being smothered, like the the, the lagoon itself was a bit smothered and overwhelmed. The interdisciplinary conservation scientist Meredith Root Bernstein talks to the philosopher Emanuela Kocha, departing from his works Metamorphosis and The Life of Plants. Examining various approaches to agency and image making in her residency project, Root Bernstein was interested in wetland flora as beings with agency instead of passive tools in lagoon restoration projects, echoing biological and ecological concepts, such as developmental plasticity and ecosystem engineering. In this conversation, the Venetian lagoon is a cocoon, a place of transformation where every single living being reciprocally transforms and is transformed by its environment. Our guests delve into this interest in moving beyond questions of observation or gaze. 
toward a situated and embodied understanding of life on Earth. Thank you very much, Emmanuel. Our project really drew on your work quite a lot, so it's very uh, wonderful to be able to speak to you about it. So our project looks at the historical transformations of the Venice Lagoon and how plants contribute to restoring its ecological and geomorphological dynamics. One of the first things that helped us clarify our approach in this project was to draw on your book Metamorphoses and to think of the Venice Lagoon as a big cocoon. Can you explain the idea of the cocoon as you develop it in your book? The book and Metamorphoses were the attempt to, in a way, to extend the model of Metamorphoses. It's uh, quite clear in the case of the insects. So I try to extend this model to every kind of relationship that every single living being has with itself, but also to every form of relationship that every single living being has with environment and with the rest of the living beings. In the case of insects, the cocoon is just a sort of postnatal egg. So it's a, a recreation, a reproduction of the conditions of, of birth. And this space allows, at the same time, deconstruct and reconstruct itself. What is interesting, even from a biological point of view, according to some entomologists, is that the cocoon is, the, or this stage of the life of an insect, is a reproduction of what is normally happening during the embryonic phases, in the period before birth, after the birth. This is interesting for at least two reasons. First of all, because it's an evidence of the fact that the very first metamorphosis that every single living being is passing through is the birth itself. Every single living being has to be born in order to exist, which is not at all a tautology, because to be born means to be obliged to apply, to use an already living matter. So every single living being is obliged to reuse, recycle, already living stuff, which makes out of every living being, in a way, a recycling life, a second-hand life, but also which shows that every living being has to adapt to new needs, to new uh, conditions. Every living being is, as process of metamorphosis, is obliged to transform the life inherited, on the other side, what is interesting in this kind of universalization of the model of metamorphosis of insects is uh, there is no difference between uh, a technical object and the mass natural object. Uh, so the object that allows people to be born, so the egg or the uterus and so on, which means that in a way there is a perfect equivalence between life and technology. And again, that means that a cocoon is the paradigmatic form of every technological object so that whenever we are building a tool, an object, we are reproducing by form and purposes the cocoon itself or what the cocoon that made us possible for the birth. This is again something meaningful to me. First of all because it means that technology has always something to do with this capacity of giving birth to something, but also in every technological tool, what is at stake is not just the transformation of the world, but the transformation of the living subject itself. It's important to me to think of cocoon as the part to think what is technology. Yeah, and I think when we thought of the Venice Lagoon as a cocoon, we were also making an analogy between an entire environment, a habitat, a landscape, and a living being, which I think also uh, comes out of your work as well. What is more evident in Venice than in other cities is the fact that because of the so evident presence of non-human elements, at the same time living and non-living, which is the lagoon, the cocoon of Gaia, first of all, in the sense that every city implies a sort of transformation and metamorphosis of the earth, which could be good or bad, but in order to live the world, in order to inhabit the world, we have to transform radically its surface, its consistency, its texture, 
every single living being, not just human beings, uh, but of course, in the case of human beings, it's particularly evident. Every living being has to transform, to manipulate, to alter every single centimeter square of uh, the space which is surrounding them. That's interesting because in a way that means that a city is a cocoon in itself. Why Venus is so interesting? Because it's a very clear example of monocultural settlement. So I don't know, a couple of vegetal species, uh, dogs, cats, uh, and then in an illegal way, uh, mosquitoes and perhaps mouses, uh, so rats. But every other living being is uh, in a way not allowed to be there because of this presence of the water. I'm speaking from removal because in the case of the normal Western cities, people are in a way removing just the evidence of the fact that they are still living with other living beings because uh, the survival of a city depends on the number of uh, cows or pigs and apple trees or uh, banana trees. Every single living being, which every citizen of the city needs in order to survive. Venice, it's interesting, and it's a model for more than urban parties because you cannot hide, you cannot remove every city. First of all, it's a transformation of the natural space. Cities are not just spaces which are naturally there in order to host human beings. You have to adapt the space in order to live there, or you have to manipulate spaces in order to be there. And secondly, because it's impossible to forget that living in the world means to share your space with other species. Another idea of yours that we drew on in our project was the point of life. And you developed this in, in your book, The Life of Plants. And of course, in our project, one of our interests was precisely how plants like reeds help to transform the lagoon. Um, and we wanted to think about seeing the lagoon from different perspectives, such as the perspectives of the plants, their situated view from the lagoon, from underwater or from on the water. So could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between these two ideas that you develop in your two different books, the cocoon and the point of life? The idea of point of life was to stress the fact that it's not enough to try to observe the world from the point of view of other species. It's, of course, uh, something good, but it's not enough because it's not just a question of cognition or observation or of gaze, because the spectacle is not just an immaterial. Actually, the spectacle is possible just because the living thing itself has modified, in a way, the flesh of Gaia, the flesh of the planet. Every living being is a modification of the Earth itself. And in a way, it's changing not just the perspective of the world, it's changing also the matter, the flesh, the body of the Earth. So that's why it's important not just to try to sketch what is the kind of experience that a rat or a mosquito or a plant is experiencing, but also to what kind of point of life, to what kind of stage the earth itself is brought by this species. So in a way, every single living species is an experiment made out of the flesh of the planet. It's important to understand that every living being is a cocoon in itself, uh, or every species, it's a cocoon of Gaia. Yeah, that, I mean, what we were thinking was that you can only understand what the cocoon is becoming, what it consists of and what it's transforming into by understanding the point of life perspective, what is being transformed from the point of life of a particular species. Yeah, or accumulating a, a lot of points of life. So what is interesting is also to 
relied on different points of life and not just stay on one of them. As I said, I never thought about that, but I would say the concept of cocoon is larger. It's brighter. I mean, it's, yeah, it's larger than the concept of point of life. Cocoons are everywhere, in a way. Because of this identity between life and metamorphosis, so life is always a form of cocoon. So, and the environment itself is the, the cocoon. So, of course, uh, the lagoon itself, uh, coming back to your question, is a huge multi-species cocoon. That's also, I guess, how we're trying to think about it. Could I ask you to um, look at this clip um, from our from the filming that Sonia has been doing? And while you while you look at it, could you describe what you see, what you hear, and share your reaction to it, and what it makes you think of, um, what it begets for you? The space underwater is the same, or you have the same also sounds you have above the water. It's so Venetian in a way. <laughs> so the style of uh, this part of the film is like, uh, I had the impression to see sort of Venetian style uh, living being, which adapted itself to the cultural form of the surrounding. There is a sound, which is the sound of like uh, a motorboat or something, which is like just passing uh, on them and i thought wow it's even from a from a morphological point of view there is this kind of uh, homogeneity or perhaps if nature has adapted to the artificial environment or the other way around it was uh, amazing to see this kind of continuity between uh, the human and non-human space We also really liked your idea, which is also from your book Metamorphoses, in which you were discussing a little bit already that technique or technology is not just an extension of human capabilities uh, for altering the outside world, but also the capacity that every organism has to change itself. And therefore, as we were just talking about, it changes its interactions with the world. It changes how the world is transformed. So for us, this was important because it means we don't have to think of reeds uh, and other water plants as objects that are passively being used by humans as tools for restoration in these lagoon restoration projects. It also invites us to think about reeds as agentive and flexible beings that are transformed by the lagoon and are transforming the lagoon. And in many ways, what was interesting to me in particular is that this echoes biological and ecological concepts such as developmental plasticity and ecosystem engineering. And one of the things I think that your work does in an interdisciplinary context is that it legitimizes or it provides a language for thinking about biological ideas and theories and not only biological facts or illustrations for an argument. So we were wondering what does engagement with biology and ecology do for your own thinking? Biology and ecology were so deeply in my mind that I started to re, to baptize, uh, to name the words with those raw materials. And that's why I decided at a certain point to write on plants, to write on uh, insects, even if I, I am uh, a professor for human and social sciences. I think that biology and especially ecology need today a huge work of uh, critical reassessment. I'm working on a book, Critical History of uh, Modern Contemporary Ecology. There are a lot of uh, concepts, ideas, which are a core of ecological thinking, which are there just because of this lack of historical consciousness. Starting, for instance, the name ecology was kind of invented by Haeckel, so the famous Darwinian biologist of 19th century, 
just uh, in order to avoid the proximity with another science, which was economics, because the very first name of the science was Economy of Nature, the name that circle of students uh, around the Naos gave to this uh, new discipline. But the name stands for a theological presupposition, which was necessary at the time, the only way in order to grasp a relationship between all species, because that's what ecology is trying to do, to understand what is the relationship among all species in the world, and what is the relationship among all species and all species in the world. And at the time of its birth, so in the 18th century, the only way to affirm and to state and to grasp this relationship was to put yourself from the point of view of God, of the Christian God, which is the, the guy, well, the person who created all the species and who necessarily had an idea of the relationship of all species. So that's why the science of all species of the world took the name of the science of the administration of a house, which is economy. Also, for instance, the concept of ecosystem, it's a concept that should be abandoned today because it's a, it's a concept which has too many positions which have nothing to do with empirical observation because ecosystem is still the idea that species are mating just because they are sharing interest. And I'm literally quoting one of the father of ecology, which is Stephen Forbes, because they are taking profit from another, which is a totally stupid image. But it's an interesting image because it's, in a way, a slightly animistic idea of species that would have interest, can take profit consciously or from other living beings. And also later in the 40s, this idea of ecosystem was equipped with the idea of a thermodynamic balance, which is also at the same time, a useful metaphor, but also very, very wrong metaphor. So that's why we have to rewrite ecology also in the very literal sense of renaming phenomena, so rebaptizing the world in a different way. And it's the same for biology, but for biology, the enterprise has already begun in, say, 20, 30 years, that biology was excessively under the control of zoology. To analyze and to understand life comes from the study of animals, particularly evidence when it comes to the question of intelligence was destroyed by the research of uh, botanists uh, like Stefano Mancuso or Anthony Truavas, who showed that actually intelligence doesn't need a nervous system in order to be present. But if we accept that, then uh, a huge part of biology is in a way, how can I say, it's uh, not destroyed, but for instance, neurosciences become hugely less important than uh, they claim and so on. So biology and ecology have to redefine themselves and they can do that only integrating in a way much more speculative thinking, much more collaboration with philosophy and human. In the case of biology, uh, we need a lot of uh, mixing with ethnographies or with anthropologists, with living sciences coming from other cultures. And that's already happening. That's why we are living in such an exciting time. And also, I mean, the work of artists is becoming more and more important. One of the challenges for our project is to translate these ecological concepts and processes that we've been talking about just now um, and, and the ideas we derive from your work into images, both in the film that Sonia is making and as a set of objects that we'll be making with reeds and sediment. And you've talked previously about doing philosophy without writing. And so we were wondering what role do images and the nonverbal play in your work or what role would you like them to play in philosophy more generally? Every language is also at the same time visual and also figurative in the sense that Speaking means that you are imaging in your mind. That is that you are doing exactly the same that you are doing when you're dreaming. In a way, 
I am doing the same uh, job that an artist is doing. And scientists is exactly the same. That's why I think we should overcome this opposition between uh, science, human science, and art. We are all uh, trying to chisel images, and we are all trying to share dreams. We are in a world where we stopped, at least in a vernacular level, we start to acknowledge towards this uh, privileged position in the sense that we are living in a world today where it's totally normal to communicate through images. We accept that images can convey much more meaning, much more sense than we used to think. And that's why artists are today in a very, very special position in the sense that they are, in a way, the ones who have to develop First of all, a new grammar. It's not a question of interdisciplinary work. It's like artists should start to do science and the other way around. Science should start to use videos or plastic uh, forms in order to express itself. Yeah, and of course, Venice is one of these beautiful Italian cities. But at the same time, I don't think that the lagoon is usually seen as part of the artwork of the city. Although, of course, the lagoon has been completely uh, intervened, engineered, and made by other species, but by humans as well. So you can, of course, think of it as part of the artwork of the city. But our project is trying to address the fact that most of the time it's not thought of that, that way. I know that you lived for some period in in Venice, so I was wondering, how did you see the lagoon? What was your relationship with the lagoon when you were there? I used to live there for three years because I used to work there. It is, of course, one of the most amazing cities of the world because you are in this kind of open-air scene. In Venice, it's particularly evident the fact that you are living in an artwork, sort of an extremely diesel space or spectral space, especially the night. And also the fact that it's abandoned to natural forces, so the water, the wind. So it's like a desert, but a, a human desert, which is amazing. And the other experience, which was amazing for me, it was when uh, it snows in Venice, because you have the impression or the illusion, you have the feeling that everything is made up out of water in different states of aggregation. Perhaps Venice should become, because of the fact that uh, it is at the same time an artwork, but also an artwork which has to think of itself as an ecosystem, it is the city of the future in a way, or it is the model following which we have to think of uh, future cities. That's also, I guess, how we're trying to think about it. So just to end, instead of using ecology derived from a a metaphor about transactional interactions, uh, maybe we could rename ecology something like metamorphology. I don't think so, because ecology was born in the time of Linnaeus, so by and made by the students of Linnaeus, which means that Linnaeus gave a sort of logical portrait of nature and tried to define the relationship of all species through logical device. And his students realized that actually the relationship between living beings is not just a logical one, but it's a social one. And it's interesting that ecology started with the position that there is a sociability among non-human beings. We need you know, to understand this uh, social network of relationship among species. Physics is not enough. Biology, not enough. Chemistry, not enough. What we have to redefine or what we have to ask ourselves is why species meet. And of course, this why has a huge amount of answers. For instance, one of them should be, of course, love. Or the other way around, 
because of the fact that we are sharing uh, space and time with other people in a city, for instance, I'm living in Paris, so I have to share the space with a lot of Parisians. And you need at a certain point to love in a way people who are there, because if you don't love them, it's a nightmare. So that's why, for instance, uh, perhaps more than metamorphology, a good name for ecology should be erotics. So we have to love. So species love themselves and every species learns to love other species. Magical, Fresh, and Salty Conversations is produced by TBA 21 Academy with the support of STARTS, an initiative by the European Commission. Special thanks to our hosts and guests, Emanuela Kacha, Karen Amimoto Ingersoll, Sonia Levy, and Meredith Root Bernstein. Editor-at-large, Maria Montero Sierra. Editing and sound design, Elena Caesar. Voiceover, Nathan Johnson. Music by Horizon Sound and underwater sound recordings of the Venetian Lagoon by Sonia Levy and Jez Riley French. Produced by Miriam Calabresa, Maria Montero Sierra, Katerina Rakuschek, and the artists. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.